So we are in the middle of a series that we're calling Difference Maker that starts with a very simple premise, and that is that we all want to make a difference. All of us, we want to make a difference in our homes, in our schools, in our workplaces. We want to make a difference in the world, that the world is a little different from our having passed through it. But while we all want to make a difference, we also have this tendency to want to be just like everybody else. And a very simple truth is that if we want to make a difference, we have to be people who are willing to be different. And so as part of this series, we're reading together through the book of Daniel. We've put together a reading plan to read through the book in about three weeks. The book of Daniel is essentially a story about a group of folks who were willing to be different, to remain faithful when everybody else around them was selling out, was doing what everybody else was doing. But these individuals, by being different, they made a huge difference. We started by noticing that these three individuals, or excuse me, these several individuals had three options, as we all do. They found themselves in a country, in a culture, not by their own choosing, but one that, that didn't appreciate their heritage, their culture, their religion, their, their lifestyle. They were quite literally ripped out of their homeland as people of Israel and taken into the Babylonians. And so they had three options. The first is that they could assimilate, that they could become just like everybody else, just sort of mix in amongst all the other Babylonians. The second option was to compromise, to be a little bit Israelite and a little bit Babylonian, right? I'm still going to read Scripture. I'm still going to study the Torah. I'm still going to do these things. But at the same time, just to be on the safe side, I'm going to pray to the Babylonian gods as well. Option three, though, is to remain faithful. When everybody else is doing everything else, they remained faithful faithful. We all see how this plays out in our world. The culture is pushing us as people of faith, as Christians, to assimilate amongst the world. It's pushing us to become essentially cultural Christians. But we have been called to be of the world, to be in the world, but not of the world. Last week, we looked at the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and asked a couple questions. The question that we first asked is, what are my golden images? What are those things in my life that cast a large shadow? Those things that carry a lot of weight in our lives, those things that take up a lot of our time, our energy, our attention. And the second question that kind of goes with it was, what is asking too much of me? And we looked at several things that may not be necessarily bad on their own, but simply simply ask too much of us. We talked about our phones. We talked about youth sports. We talked about a number of different things. In this last week, I had somebody reach out to me on social media and say, uh, Russ, is this sermon available in children's version? I said, well, what do you mean by children's version? She says, my toddler is asking way too much of me, more of me than I'm willing to give, and I really need her to hear this sermon. So watch for that children's book coming out on Tuesday. So today, I want us to look at one area that oftentimes casts a large shadow. It takes a lot of us to navigate. It requires a lot of our attention. But I would argue that also, if we don't pay enough attention to it, that can also give great trouble, and that is essentially our relationship with our money. Our relationship with our money. Now, 
I believe that Jesus knew of the danger that our relationship with our money had the potential of wreaking havoc in our lives. In fact, 65% of what Jesus talked about had to do with money or possessions. Jesus knew amongst the people around him in that day, the people of this day, that our relationship with money can be tricky. And so this morning, we're going to look at what it would look like to be option three people, to remain faithful with our finances. We're going to be looking at two texts this morning. The first one is from Daniel 5, part of what we've been reading together. But we're also going to be looking at another text from 1 Timothy. It's short. It's only three verses. In part because I think Paul gives us some pretty good insights as to what it means to be an option three person when it comes to our money, to our possessions. It describes what it looks like to have a healthy relationship with our finances. Now, a couple of quick insights into Daniel 5. That chapter begins pretty abruptly. We don't get any transition. There's no introduction. We're just simply introduced to a new character, a character by the name of Belshazzar, and he is giving a great banquet. Now, chapter 4 ended by talking about King Nebuchadnezzar, who had been the the main character throughout the first four chapters. But we aren't told anything about the end of his reign, about the transition that happened after him, the secession after his death. In, in this text, as you'll hear, we're led to believe that Belshazzar is actually Nebuchadnezzar's son. But what we know from historical records, things outside of the Bible, is that Belshazzar followed his own actual father, a king by the name of Nabonidus who followed three others between Nebuchadnezzar. So the gap between chapter 4 and chapter 5 is actually about a quarter of a century. You see, in Semitic languages, of which the Hebrew is, the term father is not always used just in terms of a biological or even an adoptive parent, but could also mean that of an ancestor. And so I want you to listen now to these two texts from Daniel and also from 1 Timothy. Our first reading comes from Daniel 5, verses 1 through 4. King Belshazzar made a great festival for a thousand of his lords, and he was drinking wine in the presence of the thousand. Under the influence of the wine, Belshazzar commanded that they bring in vessels of gold and silver that his father Nebuchadnezzar had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem, so that the king and his lords his wives and his concubines might drink from them. So they brought in the vessels of gold and silver that they'd been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem. And the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines drank from them. They drank the wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Second reading comes from 1 Timothy 6, 17 through 19. As for those who in the present age are rich, commanded them not to be haughty or to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but rather on God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, generous and ready to share thus storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of the life that really is life. The word of God for the people of God. 
So Belshazzar is having this enormous banquet for thousands of his lords, and not just his lords, but also his wives, their concubines. There are thousands of people. This is a scene of ostentatious opulence and a little bit of debauchery just thrown in for good measure. They're drinking wine out of the golden vessels that were seized from the temple in Jerusalem. And by doing so, they're not just showing off about all of the beautiful vessels that they have, all of the beautiful china, but also they're trying to impress those people around them. He's not just trying to impress, but he's also committing blasphemy against God, the God of the Jews, all while praising God, the gods of gold and silver, of bronze and iron and stone and wood. And if we continue to read on as we have been, we learn that this doesn't end well for King Belshazzar. Now, I'm willing to bet that we all know someone like that. We all know somebody in our lives like that who has the access to the finest things, the most beautiful things, and loves to show them off. Loves to impress those people around them with their wealth. That has a lot of golden images, if you will, and wants everyone to know it. Now here's where I want to begin this morning, and I want to be very clear about this. And that is that it's not bad to be wealthy. I'm just going to put that out there. I don't think I've ever said that in church before, but it's not bad to be wealthy. It's not bad to have access to the finest things. It's our relationship to that wealth that sometimes causes us to get in trouble. It's when those things that we own begin to own us. You know, one of the most important things that is misquoted in the Bible, that's not really in the Bible. Did I say that right? The most mis often misquoted thing that's not in the Bible. Do you know what that is? Money is the root of all evil. Church says it nowhere in the Bible. What it says is the love of money is the root of all evil. You see, sometimes our finances, our resources, they cast a big shadow on our lives in part because we don't have enough. And if we've ever lived in that type of way, we know that that can be difficult. But sometimes, sometimes it casts a large shadow in our lives because we have enough, we just don't know how to manage it. And in not managing it, it owns us. The text that Mike read a moment ago from 1 Timothy talks directly to those people with money, talks to the wealthy, and implicit within it is the lesson on how to be option three people. You heard what he says, as for the rich who are rich in the present age, in other words, the physical world, Paul was very clear that there is this distinction between the physical world, but also the heavenly world. Right? There's a difference in being wealthy in this world and wealthy in the things that really matter. What Jesus would refer to as, as the heavenly things. And what Paul is saying is that you can have both or you can have neither. You can have one or the other. That there's not a correlation between the two. But yet they are distinct. You can be rich in this world or you can be rich in the world of the things that really matter. Now, I know that there is this natural tendency, this temptation when reading 
when reading a text like this, to immediately think, well, clearly he's not talking about us. He's talking about the rich people. In other words, he's talking about everybody who has just a little bit more than I do. There's a tendency for us to say, as for those that are richer than us. Because clearly, whatever I have, he's talking about those with more. But I'm willing to bet. I'm willing to bet that Paul would have all of us in mind, that we would all fall into this category. Do you realize that if you have a household income of more than $50,000 a year, that you are in the top 15% of the world? The top 15% of the world, if you have a household income of $50,000 a year. Now, I'm not exactly sure where rich starts, but I'm pretty sure that it's lower than the top 15% of the world's population. Not only that, but if your household income is more than $100,000, you are in the top 5% of the wealthy people of the world. Sometimes we forget, don't we, that only 8% of the people in the world own a car, and yet one out of three American families owns three or more. Sometimes we forget that, that every 16 seconds somewhere in the world, someone dies of hunger and yet here in the United States, two out of three Americans, two out of three of us struggle to control our weight. You see, when Paul is talking about the rich, he's talking to us. He's talking to those of us in this room. And again, he's not saying that it's bad to have wealth. He's just watching, warning us to watch out for a few things. The first, the first he says is that, is that we should not be haughty. We should not be haughty. Now, last week we learned a new phrase, pay you no heed. This week we learned haughty. So now, now I'm going to try and work this into every phrase I get. Now, if someone comes to me and says, will you do this for me, Russ? I will simply say, oh, you haughty individual, I pay you no heed. <laughs> now, haughty means essentially the opposite of being humble. I love the way that the King James translates this. He says that, that they not be high-minded. In other words, that they think too highly of themselves. They've got, a, they've got a big head. We should not be haughty. The second is to not set our hopes in riches, which we all know is difficult for us to do, and I would argue that it's even impossible to avoid 100% of the time. I almost suggested to my wife, Kelly, that this would be a good Sunday for her to sleep in and to not come to church because she will tell you that I, I struggle with this just as much as everybody else, that as a pastor, it should be my responsibility to set a good example, but the truth is, is that I struggle with this just as much, if not more, than anybody else to not set our hopes and riches. But if we're going to be people who follow this advice, who, who have a good relationship with money, we must recognize this one particular thing about riches, and that is that they are uncertain. That as much financial security as any of us have, at the end of the day, there's always going to be uncertainty with the things of this world. If we have learned anything in the last three years, it's that we don't know what the next three years are going to hold. There is all sorts of uncertainty. The world will always be shaky, but if we buy into the lie that riches will provide a certain hope for the future, 
well, then we're just having the wool pulled over our eyes. Again, nothing wrong with having money. It's okay to have wealth. But to, be watch, to watch out, to not be haughty, and to not put our hope in this stuff, but instead to put our hope in God. We are, he says, to, to be wealthy in good works, to be generous. In other words, this is the antidote for being haughty, that we should serve others, that we should do good works. Nothing wrong with having money. It's what we do with it. There's nothing wrong with it. He's just saying that it can be dangerous. And so to be on guard, we are to do good works. We are to put that money to work. And in so doing these things, they they store up for themselves a treasure of a good foundation for the future so that it may take hold of the life that really is life. In other words, the life that we all really desperately want at the end of the day. He goes on to say that there is this irony, irony in the reason that, that the reason that we keep our wealth for ourselves is that we're trying to create a sense of security for our future. But Paul recognizes that, that while it's important to build a solid foundation, that that doesn't create the type of security that we really want. That actually by hoarding our wealth, that, that we think that we are creating a solid future for ourselves, but actually it's creating cracks in the foundation of our lives. Paul is saying that the way to actually build a solid foundation, a solid future, is by being generous and by being, doing good works. You know, you ask just about any parent what they want for their children, and the number one answer, we just want them to be happy. In fact, you ask just about any of us, what is it that you want most in life? Most of us would say, I just, I just want to be happy. I don't want to have to worry about these things. I just want to be happy. But the truth is, a lot of us pursue that happiness for ourselves. We pursue that happiness for our children by being option one people, by by spending money, investing in the things, the future that everybody else wants, that everybody else does. But Paul sees through those lies. He says that the way to build a solid foundation is to live a life that we really want to live, to live the life that really is life by being generous, by serving other people. Now, there's a lot of different ways that we can talk about what it means to be option three people when it comes to our relationship with money. But I think that there is a very simple formula. And that is quite simply that option one people tend to look at their finances, look at their resources, and say the first part that I'm going to have is I'm going to create the life that I want. I'm going to buy the things that I want to buy. I'm going to pay for my mortgage. I'm going to pay for my car. I'm going to buy the clothes, the things that I want. And then, and then after that, I'm going to create a savings for myself, right? I'm going, to, I'm, going to, I'm going to save a little bit for the future, and then whatever's left, with that, I'm going to be generous. With that, I'm going to give that money away. We spend, we save, and then whatever's left, we give. But Paul is pushing us to flip that around, to recognize that the most important thing that we can do with our money is to give it away. To give it first and then, and then prepare for the future, creating a savings, and then live off the rest. 
What would it look like in your life to give, to save, and then to spend instead of spending, saving, and giving what's left? You know, this notion is actually biblical in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. It talks about the first fruits. In the first fruits, they, they recognize that Anytime a harvest is done, they take what they have gathered together and the first fruits they give away as an offering. And then what is left, they live off of and save for the future. What would it look like if the very first check that you wrote each month was not to your mortgage company, was not to your car company, but is to give it away? What would it look like to live off the first fruits of what you have you see, when we live differently in that way, we are not, when we live that way, we are set up to make a difference. To make a difference with the, the first money that we receive, to make a difference, then to prepare for the future, and then to live in the present on the rest. This, Paul would say, is what it looks like to be an option three people with our finances. You know, the truth is, is that we all know people like Belshazzar, who love to show off, who love to impress, who has a lot of golden images, and they want everyone to know it. But I think at the end of the day, that's not the type of people that we want to be. That's not the type of person that I want to be. That's not the type of person that I want my children to be. And I know that there is this natural inclination, there is this temptation to be just like everybody else. And if we're not careful, we will fall into that trap to be owned by the things that we own or those things that we want to own. But that's not the type of people that we want to be. You see, we're learning this month and reading Daniel together that the best way to live is is as option three people to run our own race, to not let the world decide for us who we're going to be, how we're going to live, what we're going to be about. But to say, I'm going to look for something greater than that to guide me. I'm going to look to my faith. I'm going to look at what it means to follow Jesus, what it means to faithfully follow the one that we call Christ. That by being different... We will make a difference in my life, but also enable me to make a difference in the people around me. Don't be haughty. Don't place your hope in riches. Be rich in good works. Be generous. Be ready to share. Amen.
One of my friends refers to Target as the $100 store. And I have to agree with her. I can't seem to get out of Target without spending $100. And usually it's on stuff that I didn't really need to begin with. Now, you may be hearing that and thinking, $100, that is an exorbitant amount. Or maybe you're hearing that and thinking, well, that's not that bad. Wherever you are on that spectrum, I think most of us can agree that we spend money on things that we don't really need because we're trying to keep up with other people or have things that other people have. One of the things I love about this table is the equality that we find here. No matter how much money you have, everybody gets a tasteless piece of bread and a tiny little sip of juice. But what it represents is a feast. A feast for our souls that we remember Christ set for his friends on the night he was betrayed. And he took bread and he gave thanks for it. And he broke it. And he gave it to them. And he said, this is my body. It is for you. Whenever you eat this, Remember me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup. And he gave thanks for that. And he gave it to them and said, This is the cup of the new covenant. Poured out for you. Whenever you drink this, remember me. Let us pray. Gracious God, as we take this bread and this cup, may our faith and commitment to you be strengthened. May we reflect the life of love, service, and acceptance that Jesus demonstrated. May we also show compassion and kindness for our neighbors and those that are hurting. In your son's name we pray.